This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. I believe that God is preparing to do something magnificent in the world. But not just, you know, when we say that, often young people look around and they say, you know, maybe God's going to do something wonderful in the world, or maybe He's going to do something wonderful in the life of the person next to me, but He's probably not going to do something wonderful in my life. But I want to tell you today that God is going to do something marvelous in your life here at GYC if you will allow Him to do it. Amen? And uh, I believe, I've been traveling, I don't say this boastfully, but I've been doing work all around the world in the last three years. And what I can see is this, that God is preparing a group of young people to do His last day work. God is preparing the hearts of young people all around the world to receive His Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, I've been doing, in the last three years, I've been doing several evangelistic meetings in different areas in Ukraine and and Central and South America and different other places in the world. I've been preaching in India and what I found is that God is not just preparing young people in the church, but He's bringing young people from outside the church into His church all around the globe by the hundreds. And I'm just telling you, the events that we see happening in the world today, I can tell you that there is no greater time in earth's history than to be living right now. It is, it is a privilege in the day that we live in to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And maybe some of you young people today are still trying to find yourself within that realm. But let me tell you, everything that you may not know exactly what you're looking for in life, but I can assure you, as a young person, I was 22 years old when I accepted Christ, everything that you've been looking for in your life, you will find in Jesus Christ. And everything that you could hope, every ounce of truth you could hope to know, you can find, well, I wouldn't say every ounce of hope of knowledge because we don't know everything, but the greatest truth in the world is found in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And, and, and I'm telling you, friends, it is so exciting. You're going to see that in our study this morning. And so I want to encourage you. How many of you believe that we should be a church hopper? You know what a church hopper is? Anybody know what that is? It's somebody that does what? Hops from church to church, to church. You know people like that? They wake up on Sabbath morning and they say, oh, what church are we going to go to today? Well, they say, well, who's speaking in such and such a church? And, you know, maybe if Ivor Myers is speaking in that church, that's where we'll go. Or if Doug Batcher is speaking in this church, that's where we'll go. And people hop from church to church. Is that a healthy thing to do, yes or no? Not at all, because we need to be in a, what? Family, in a home church, right? Now I'm going to jump over to GYC. It is not healthy for you to be a seminar hopper. Are you with me? It is not healthy for you to be a seminar hopper. I want to encourage you to stay because what I'm going to be sharing with you is going to build on each other. Now, of course, I can't force you to stay. Even though I'm going to lock the doors and put chains on you, you can still, you're still free to go if you can escape. Uh, but I want to encourage you to stay because I'm telling you, there's such a rich blessing. Um, and it, you're going to build. If you go to each one, yeah, you're going to get a blessing, but you're not going to be able to build on that experience. You understand that? And so I want to encourage you to stay. And what we're going to share 
I'm going to share in these first two sessions. And I have a way to make you stay. And that's called, maybe we just won't even take a break. How about that? I'm just kidding. I don't know. We'll see how it goes, okay? I won't promise you anything. How many of you feel like sometimes you need a break and you need to sleep? Well, guess what? You can sleep when you're dead. Amen? And so, uh, that's always what I like to say. You can sleep when you're dead. But, all, all joking aside, guys, what I'm going to share with you in this first session is, is powerful because you're going to see the experience of the disciples and what they went through to experience the early rain. Then we're going to look at the... We're going to parallel that with the experience of the early Advent believers and see what they went through to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to compare that to what do we need to do as the final generation to experience the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, we're we're going to touch on some issues that our church is facing today such as evolution and other things, and you're going to be amazed to see how God's going to pull it all together. And you're going to see an overall picture today. Then this afternoon, we're going to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the sanctuary. And you're going to see that there were three temples in Scripture that will reveal the glory of God. I'm not going to tell you what they are now, but you've got to come back this afternoon. And then we're going to look at a practical application of how what, is it, what do I need to do in my life to experience more of the Holy Spirit? And then tomorrow we're going to look at some practical steps for witnessing and, 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 and prayer and other things. So we have an exciting time. Amen? Well, who is this guy standing in front of you? You may not even know who I am, and that's okay. But my name is Wes Peppers. I work for Amazing Facts. Um, I work for AFCO. And uh, how many of you have ever heard of AFCO before? It's Amazing Facts Center of Evangelism, a powerful four-month training school, and uh, it's a blessing to have worked there in the last five years. And I'll just want to share a real brief history of my testimony in like three minutes. Is that okay? Um, I did not grow up in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I did not grow up in any church. Uh, My family didn't go to church when I was young. But growing up, I did go to church sometimes with my grandparents. And when I got into high school, I actually, I want to show you a few pictures here. I got involved in, in football. And I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know anything about anything, really. And uh, my, my freshman year, um, I became, I was, uh, you can see me, this is here when I had some hair. Um, and I became, a, I became engaged in football. I was actually a, a really good student. And I, be, I got involved with football because I wanted to, um, ultimately, I wanted to play college football. And as I began to, as I continued in my high school career, I got bigger and bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And uh, I don't recommend this, but I, I took the stuff called calf starter. And uh, it actually causes you to gain weight. It's supposed to be for cows, but I was taking it. And I just got bigger and stronger. Until my senior year, I weighed about 260 pounds. I was bench pressing 450 pounds and squatting almost 700 pounds. And the Bible tells us in Jeremiah, let not the mighty man glory in his what? In his might or in his strength. But that's exactly what I was doing. And uh, even I was kind of like the high school star around campus. And even though, even though I was the star of the community, my own heart was empty. And in my senior year, let me just tell you, my, um, my senior year I was even All-American playing football. 
and I was all state. You can see here, it was in the newspapers, and I was being recruited by several different universities, and something happened my senior year in high school. I actually had a career-ending injury, and it was a great blessing from God, because it, I was so full of pride and full of arrogance. Um, but even though I had that injury, I still ended up playing college football. I played two years of college football, and I, w- I just grew even more and got even bigger. And, but i got to tell you, in college, my life was totally empty, and I had no purpose or meaning. And I ended up quitting college football and just going to college. My senior year, two events happened that changed my life. One was what I just told you. I had a football injury, which ended my high school career. The second thing was that my parents got divorced. And uh, it was such a terrible experience. My mother actually tried to commit suicide. And my dad, she took 25 sleeping pills, and my dad knew what she had done, and he left her there to die. And uh, he left her at the house, hoping she would die and not telling anyone. I became a very bitter and angry person in my life. I, wrote, I just completely wrote off my whole family, and I wanted to do things on my own, my own way. <clears throat> and so I, I continued in college, and... It was there I began to study some writings from Thomas Paine to Thomas Jefferson. And in those writings, he talked about all the reasons why he didn't believe in God. And so as I read those things, I became more and more convinced. And I looked at my own life and I said, if God really cared about me, why would he allow all these bad things to happen to me? And so between that, my own experience, and all this stuff that I was studying, I decided that I was going to be an atheist. And when I did that, my life just continued to spiral even more, downwards even more. And I began, to, I began to drink. I was an alcoholic. You know, I had all these problems. I was involved in relationships. And my life was an absolute mess. And I was only, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. And ultimately, and I could tell you stories, but we won't take the time. But ultimately this, my life was completely empty. And I, and I got to the point where I said, if this is what life is all about, why even live? And so I started thinking about committing suicide. And I thought about that for several weeks. And I wanted to do it in such a way that it would cause pain and suffering to my family for the rest of their lives. That's how bitter and angry I was. But something began to happen. As I continued to contemplate suicide, my, I had this other impression, this thought that kept coming to my mind. And the thought was, why don't you study the Bible? Why don't you study the Bible? And the more I tried to get that thought out of my mind, the more it grew. And I, I was studying evolution at university at the time, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I believe in evolution. I don't believe in God. The Bible's a book of fairy tales. Why would I study the Bible? Ultimately, I gave in, and I said, I'm going to study the Bible, prove that it's wrong, and then I'm going to commit suicide. So when I started studying the Bible... I, 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 in a miraculous way, received some study guides from my uncle from Amazing Facts. And I began to study Bible prophecy. And Bible prophecy was, blew my mind away because it gave me the confidence that the Bible could actually be trusted. I saw how God predicted events that happened in the world hundreds of years, thousands of years, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds and thousands of years before it ever happened. And I was studying Daniel Revelation, and my confidence grew in the Bible. And finally, I met the man named Jesus. Amen? Amen. And Christ changed my life. And I was 22 years old, 
knelt down before my bed. I was trembling in my college apartment, shaking like this, and invited Christ into my life. And from that point forward, my life radically changed, and I've never looked back. And God's been with me all the way. He's my best friend, and He's worked miracles in my life. And I went to AFCO and went into full-time ministry. And it's been, a, it's been a ride. In eight years, I've only been doing ministry now for about nine years, and I feel like I've done 30 year, years' worth of stuff in my whole life. And so God has just worked miracles. In 2009, I almost died from cancer. God miraculously saved me, healed me, and I'm, today I'm cancer-free, speaking at GYC. Amen? Hey, that even rhymed, right? And uh, God is amazing, friends. And He wants to do miracles in your life today. Not just at GYC, not just something that will come and go, but He wants to work a lasting miracle in your life. And He wants to have a relationship with you every single day of your life for the rest of your life. Amen? And let me tell you something. There is no greater joy than knowing Christ and serving Him. I've experienced lots of stuff. I mean, stuff you wouldn't even want to hear. But let me tell you, there's nothing greater than serving and knowing Christ. And He's been the greatest blessing in my life. So that's just a little bit about me. And I hope to get to know more about you as we go throughout the seminar. So in between the seminars, after the seminars, please come and talk to me. I want to talk to you. Amen? And uh, I just wanted to briefly share my testimony with you so that you would know my background, where I come from, and that you would know that Christ is real. Amen? And I wish I had more time to share, but we're going to go ahead and start our subject this morning. Our title is who, The Waiting Factor, Who is Waiting on Who? And this is, this is a powerful study, friends. And what we're going to see is that we think in this church we're waiting on who? We think we're waiting on Jesus. But what you're going to find today is that we're not waiting on Jesus at all. But actually, Jesus is waiting on who? He's waiting on us. And so, before we dive into our subject today, we're going to ha- I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to bow your heads wherever you are and pray with me and for me that God's Spirit would work in this room today. Amen? Father in Heaven, we thank You so much this morning that we could begin GYC. And Lord, we're thankful for the message that You have in store for us. And I pray today that it would certainly not be my message, but that Your words would come through, Your Spirit would speak to every heart today. Your Spirit would convict us of the truth that we need to know. But more importantly, that You would convict us that our great need is of Your Holy Spirit. Our great need is to have a deeper walk with Jesus. Our great need is to allow You to transform our hearts, our minds, and our lives so that we can be one with You and that You can ultimately prepare us to go home to heaven with You. Today I ask, Lord, that your power would be seen today through your word and that young people's lives and old people's lives today would be changed and that you would be sitting upon the throne of our hearts today. We ask this blessing and we pray for it in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Let me ask you a question today. How many of you have ever been disappointed in your life? Have you ever been disappointed before? And you experience disappointment and you begin to ask the question, what? Why God? Why is this happening to me? But ultimately, as you pray through it and you go through it and you study God's promises, you pray, 
Ultimately, you can look back on that experience and know that it was God who was what? Leading you, right? And your disappointment became a divine appointment. Have you had that experience before in your life, yes or no? If you have not, then you either haven't lived long enough or you haven't experienced that much in life. Okay, I'll tell you quickly about a disappointment that I had on my wedding day. And uh, my wife, this is not the best picture, but my wife and I, when we got married, I was so excited to spend the rest of my life with my wife, right? My ex-fiancee. Now she's my wife. And um, on the wedding day, I was standing at the front waiting for, you know how you stand at the front as the groom, and then you wait and wait and the, and the doors open and there she is, right? Can you imagine that Jesus is waiting for His bride? Amen? And how He's longing for us to make ourselves ready. Amen? Or to allow Him to make us ready. So I was standing there and I was waiting. And how many of you have ever been to a wedding that started on time? Not very many people, right? There's always some kind of a delay, right? And I was waiting and waiting. And this delay got was five minutes and ten minutes and fifteen minutes. And then like twenty minutes. <clears throat> Man, I'm starting to sweat. I'm thinking, hey, maybe she ran off with a hairdresser or something. I don't know. And uh, I'm thinking, maybe she doesn't want to marry me. Maybe she's changed her mind. And I, and I just sw- was sweating, and I was nervous. And, you know, I'm sitting here just like I'm standing in front of you. And I'm not speaking. I'm just standing there. And all these people are staring at me. You know that experience? And it, and it just made me nervous. And so, but finally the moment came when those doors opened. And there she was. Amen? My beautiful bride. And do you think that anything else in the world mattered to me at that moment? Not at all. I saw my bride and there she was. And my disappointment had turned into an appointment. You know, there is an apparent delay with the second coming of Jesus. And you know, it's interesting because in weddings, it's the groom that's always ready. Is it not so? But it's always... Well, typically, right? But it's the bride that is always causing the delay. Typically most of the time, right? No offense, ladies. But that's just the way it goes. You know, the hair isn't just right and all this, and, or the dress falls down, or so, who knows what happens, but something happens to cause the delay. And it's no different in us waiting for the second coming of Jesus. So what we're going to do today is look at three disappointments that took place in the Bible and in history, in prophetic history, and we're going to see what the cause of those was and how they prepared themselves to experience and receive the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to compare that to our experience today. Now, the first group of people that we're going to look at are the twelve disciples. Now, I want you to notice, I'm going to make a list of points that they experienced, and if you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. I'll be happy to give you my presentation. I'll be happy to give you anything you want that I have that will help you grow in Jesus. Amen? And I won't charge you for it. Is that happy? Are you happy about that? I'm just kidding. I wouldn't charge you anyway. Um, But the twelve disciples. Now, I want you to notice. Did the twelve disciples experience some kind of disappointment, yes or no? Absolutely. And when did that take place? Right after the cross, or during the time when Jesus was crucified on the cross, yes? Now, disciples of Jesus, when they were walking with Him to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that they were discussing along the road as they walked with Jesus... Who would be the what? Who would be the greatest, right? Now, is that any cause? Would that be a cause of delay for Jesus to come in the church today, yes or no? 
Are we experiencing the same type of thing in the church now? Yes or no? Are people striving for greatness? Yes or no? Absolutely. They're striving for greatness. They're striving for worldliness. And that's one of the reasons that we're experiencing delay of the second coming of Jesus. So disciples were talking about who would be the greatest. Now, they thought that Jesus, when He came, they thought that He was going to set up what kind of a kingdom? An earthly kingdom. They thought that He was going to march into Jerusalem and He was going to sit down on the throne and they were going to crown Him the King of Israel and King, you know, the Son of David and He was going to raise up an army and throw those Romans out of, out of um, Jerusalem and he w- they were going to sit on His right hand and on His left hand, right? And they thought, man, we are going to be a part of something great, something magnificent. But instead, when they got to Jerusalem, what happened? They took Jesus by the beard and they beat Him to a pulp. They arrested Him. Then they beat Him. Then they scourged Him. Then they put a cross on Him and they marched Him up to the hill and they crucified Him. Can you imagine? This was the whole mindset of all of Israel that the King, uh, the Messiah would come and He would set up this marvelous kingdom and He would rule forever. And all their hopes, in Luke 24 it says, were rested upon Jesus that He would be the one that would set up that great kingdom. Yes or no? And when they saw Jesus on the cross, we're told that they were absolutely crushed. All their hopes were dead and they realized that this, they were, the thoughts were going through their mind, this is not really the King of Israel. Right? Yes or no? So they were going through a great disappointment. But was it changed to a divine appointment? Yes or no? Absolutely. On that same walk, Jesus came up to them and He said, why are you so what? Why are you so sad? And He opened the Bible and He began to give them a Bible study about who He was and what He represented. Yes or no? And their eyes ultimately became opened. And so the Bible says that there was great joy and they ran and told all the other disciples. So their great disappointment turned into a divine appointment. Aren't you thankful for that? Yes or no? I'm mean, very thankful that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, I hope you have your Bibles this morning. Do you have your Bibles? Let me see your Bibles. Please take them out of your bags. Never in my seminar should your Bible be in your bag. Take it out and open it because we're going to study the Bible. Amen? Now, I'm going to have some Bible texts on the screen, but many we're going to look up from the Scriptures. Are you thankful for that? Yes or no? Because the Holy Spirit will not work in your heart unless you're studying the Bible. Right? So please look with me in the book of Acts chapter 1. Where are we going? Acts chapter 1. And we're going to notice something very startling, something very amazing. Now, as the disciples saw Jesus resurrected, they had joy, and Jesus gathered the disciples together right before He ascended where? Right before He ascended into heaven. Are you guys going to sleep already? Don't go to sleep. Because this is going to get very, very exciting. We started at 9.45, which means we're supposed to end at what time? 12. Oh, that sounds good. Now, I have to, my first talk has to be over at 15.30, So, someone stop me at 10.35, okay? Can you do that for me? All right. Thank you. All right. So, the disciples were gathered together with Jesus just before He ascended, He gave them the Great Commission. Correct? Yes or no? Now, notice what happens in verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Him, saying, Lord, will You at this time 
restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, Jesus had risen from the dead, but did they still have that same mindset, yes or no? That He would restore... So, they didn't understand everything. They, they were missing the bigger picture. They were missing the bigger picture. They were, I want you to notice the question they were asking. They were asking what? Everybody, it's on the screen. Is it the what? Is it the time? Is it the time for what? To restore the kingdom upon the earth. Yes or no? So, even though Jesus had given them the Holy Spirit, even though He opened the Scriptures to them, they still did not fully understand what Christ's mission was all about. So they were asking, is it the time? Then thirdly, they were missing the bigger picture. Well, what's the bigger picture? And he said to them, it's actually verse 7 and 8, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in His authority, but you shall receive power when the what? The Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. They were missing the bigger picture. They thought that they could get the kingdom of heaven without having to do anything. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Gee, does that sound like a church that you know today? We expect that Je- we, can ex- we can see Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven without having to do anything. Anything in the world without having to do the work and also without having a work done inside of us. You see, they were missing the big picture, and the big picture was that they needed to develop the character of who? Of Christ. Yes or no? There was a work that was to be done in them, and then there was a work to be done through them. Yes or no? And they didn't know that. They didn't see that. Friends, we're in the same position today. You're going to see that very, very soon. We're in the same position today. But Jesus said there was a mission to fulfill. And what was that mission? To preach the Gospel where? To all the world. But there was also a work to be done in them. And that was done during what I call the waiting time. Now there was a waiting time that the disciples experienced before they received the Holy Spirit. How long was that waiting time? How long was it? Ten days, right? And where were they during those ten days? They were in the upper room, correct? We read about that in verse 12 through 14. So please look with me there. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and James and John and, and the company and all the others. Verse 14, These all continued with one accord in what? In prayer and supplication with the women that were there with them. Now, Notice this. Once again, they had a great disappointment that turned into a divine appointment. Then they asked, is it the time? Right? Then Jesus said, no, it's not the time because you're missing the big picture. Two things need to happen. There has to be work that's done in you and then what? Through you. Right? So Jesus gave them ten days as a waiting time to go up into the upper room to experience something, this waiting time, so that He would send His Spirit so that they could fulfill the mission that was taking place. Now, what were they doing in the upper room? Well, maybe they were up there checking their Facebook. You think so? The Facebook of the day. Let me back up here. Maybe they were up there you know, checking, um, checking their email. What do you think? 
Maybe they were up there texting their friends on the cell phone, saying, hey man, we're in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. What are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm playing Xbox and PlayStation 3. Uh, you know, hey, you should come over and hang out with us. Right? Is that what they were doing? I don't think so, friends. I don't think so. But you know what? I'm not against Facebook. I'm not against email. But today, we're so absorbed with these things and we dare to think that the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out upon our lives. We dare to think that Christ is going to transform our lives and give us His character when we're so absorbed with the things of the world. It's not going to happen, friends. What were the disciples doing? Notice this. Actually, the Apostles, page 37. As the disciples waited for the fulfillment of the promise, they didn't just wait, did they? The waiting was action. It was doing something. They were doing their part so that God could fulfill His part, right? They humbled their hearts. What did they do? <clears throat> it doesn't say they were checking Facebook. Again, I have a Facebook. You can look me up, request me there. I use Facebook for a lot of good things. But sometimes it can be a time waster, wouldn't you say? They humbled their hearts in true repentance. Not just repentance, but what kind of repentance, friends? True repentance. And confessed their unbelief. They reproached themselves for their misapprehension of the Savior. Like a procession, scene after scene of His wonderful life passed before them. And as they meditated upon His pure holy life, they felt that no toil would be too hard, no sacrifice too great, if only they could bear witness in their lives to the loveliness of Christ's character. What an amazing experience that must have been. As they sat before God on their knees, as they sat before each other praying for each other and with each other, God began to do a transforming work in their hearts. They recognized all the times that they had mistreated Jesus and how foolish they had been in His presence. Do you think that we do the same thing today, yes or no? Do we mistreat Christ? Every time you sin, you mistreat Christ. Do we value the opinions of others more than the opinions of Christ, yes or no? Many of us do today. So, what was happening there in the upper room? Very interesting, friends. There was true surrender... And there were, the Bible says there was one accord, there was unity. Does our church need unity today, yes or no? Let me tell you what, friends. There's racial division, there's gender division, there's age division, there's all kinds of division in the Adventist church today. And until we can put all those things aside and come together and pray and ask God to unite our hearts, God is not going to do it. You understand that? That goes for young people who, who write off their parents, write off their teachers, right off those who God has placed as authority figures in your life. Many times young people today are writing those people off and saying, what do they know? I'm going to do my own thing. You know what? That's exactly what Lucifer said in heaven. That's exactly what he said. You young people today, God has placed your parents in your life as authoritative figures. And let me tell you, your parents may not be perfect. They'll probably be the first one to tell you that. They may make mistakes. But let me tell you, it doesn't matter how many mistakes they make, God has called you to honor and obey your parents in the last days. You understand that? Your parents have wisdom that you don't have. Your parents have experiences that you don't have. And if you will trust them, they will help guide you today. I don't know how I got off on that, but that's what the Holy Spirit does sometimes. Amen? They were unified. That was the point. They were unified. And today, as a church, as young people, we have to be unified, not just at GYC, but at home, in our home church. There may be somebody in your home church 
that you've experienced bitterness and anger towards. But Jesus today wants to unite your heart with that person. The Bible says, even as Christ has forgiven you, Colossians 3.12, so you must also do. If there's a person that's wronged you in the church today, go to that person and say, look, brother, I, I know we've had our differences, but I just want to ask you to forgive me in my life. God wants unity in the church, not bitterness, not anger, not resentment towards your parents or your friends or others in the church. But today, in the last days, friends, God is calling for unity, just like He called for unity in the day of the disciples. Can you say amen today? How many of you want to experience unity? You know, the Bible tells us that the 144,000, they sing the song of the Lamb. You read about it in Revelation 14, I believe it's verse 5. If you sing a song together, you ever heard, try to hear people sing different tunes at different times? Oh my goodness, it's a disaster. <clears throat> Just an example, if you try to, my wife is a beautiful singer. How many of you know my wife, Miriam? She's not here, she left, but she's a beautiful singer. How many of you heard her sing? Beautiful voice. Now, if you put me up there beside my wife, I sound so bad, I make her sound bad. As beautiful as she is, right? You've got to put people up there that are singing the same tune. You understand that? And Jesus said, I can only allow those to come to heaven who are going to sing the same tune as heaven. Does that make sense? And before you can sing the tune of heaven there, we have to sing the tune of heaven where? Down here. God is calling His people today, God is calling you young people to be united. Not just at GYC, but in your homes. Not just at GYC, but in your church. Not just at GYC, but wherever you are amongst fellow believers, God is calling His people to be unified today. Can you say amen? And when we humble our hearts, when we see Christ for who He really is, when we spend time with Him so that He can do a work in our hearts, He will begin to unite us together. Amen? He will begin to unite us together. Notice what this says. The disciples prayed with intense earnestness. What kind of earnestness? intense earnestness for a fitness to meet men and in their daily intercourse to speak words that would lead sinners to who? Christ. You see, disciples weren't only just praying for for humility and unity, but they were praying that God would fill them with His Spirit so much that they could be witnesses for Him all across the world. Can you say amen? Every place they went. You know, I was in the bookstore just the other day. Every time I go places, I pray that God would bring someone into my life that I can witness to. He did it with Gavin. When I met Gavin that day, I had prayed that morning that God would bring someone into my life. The other day, I went into a Christian bookstore and I said, Lord, if there's somebody in here I need to talk to, please point them out to me. And I was looking around at some different items and, and I looked up and there's a man sitting in a chair and he's reading this little pamphlet on Seventh-day Adventists. And I said, man, that's incredible. So I went over to this man and I said, Sir, what would you like to know about Seventh-day Adventists? I said, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. And he said, you are? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I've just been curious. He said, you know, this pamphlet here, it was actually a negative pamphlet towards Adventists, like on cults or something. And, and I started to, I said, well, let me take a look at that. And I read through that. I just scanned through it. It was real short. And I said, you know, I said, about 80% of what they've written in here is totally false. And I said, the other 20% is pretty much taken out of context to, to try to support the 80% of the false claims. 
And I said, if you really want to know what Seventh-day Adventists believe, here, let me give you a, a website. And, and, and I, gave, I talked to him a little bit about what we believe. And I said, here's a website. You can sign up for free Bible studies. He said, thank you very much. And I went on. If we pray with intense earnestness, God will bring people into our lives that we can witness to today. Can you say amen? That's what they did. Now notice what they said here. <clears throat> this is powerful, friends. Putting away all differences. Putting away all desire for the supremacy. They came close together in Christian fellowship. Can you look at that? Look at that little phrase right there. Putting together, putting away all desire for the supremacy. You know, sometimes we try to convince ourselves that we're humble. Don't we? Have you ever done that before? The Bible says, you know, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? Sometimes we try to convince ourselves that we're humble. And we say, you know, I'm humble. I don't get jealous of other people. I don't get, you know, upset when others do better than me. But typically when we say that, it's because we are in a circle of people that don't outshine us. How do I know that? Because this has been my own experience. I've been, I, 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 can I confess something to you at GYC? Not that you're the priest or anything. We're not in confession. But let me say this. I used to be extremely jealous of other speakers. I did. Like, I would look at other speakers who would be invited to go places, and I would say, you know, I would never say it out loud, but I would say to my own heart, I would say, you know, I'm a better speaker than that person. I have better points than that person. My sermons are better than that person. Why would they invite that person? And I would cherish those thoughts in my heart. And when I got sick with cancer, it was very, very sad, friends, that God had to bring me to this point of humbling. I was virtually on my deathbed. And I recognized that the only thing that matters is serving Christ with the talents that He's given you. And it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. And I realized that, friends. And I can say today with assurance, it doesn't mean I can't go backwards, but I can say with assurance that God has given me the victory over that sin in my life. And that when I see other speakers do well, I rejoice for them. I rejoice at the impact they're making on young people's lives. And I don't care if I ever get speaking appointments. You know what I mean? As long as I'm serving Christ, if Christ says, go scrub that toilet, I'm going to do it with rejoicing. Amen? If Christ says, hey, go mop that floor, I'm going to be happy about it. If Christ says, go serve in the, in the lunch line at GYC and serve food to the young people, I'm going to be happy to do it. And I'm going to do, I, I realize that the true happiness comes when we are doing whatever God has called us to do in our lives. Amen? So, putting away all differences. What desire for supremacy do you have? You know, like I said before, we're typically okay as long as we're in a circle of people that don't challenge us. Right? But sometimes people come into that circle and they preach a better sermon than us or they play a musical instrument or they sing better than us. And then what typically happens? Our, our feathers get ruffled, don't they? But the Bible says, before the disciples received the Holy Spirit, they had to put away all desire for supremacy. That means that they were more interested in what God thought than what other people thought about them. Does that make sense? Because when you get jealous, you're worried about what other people think. You're not worried about what God thinks. God says, you have to be worried about what I think. And that's the experience that the disciples had. Notice what she continues. One interest prevailed. One object swallowed up all others. All hearts beat in harmony. The only ambition of the believers was to reveal the likeness of Christ's character. Isn't that powerful, friends? 
That was what they wanted. And to labor for the enlargement of the kingdom. And notice what happens here. She says, they were not, no longer were their hopes set on worldly greatness because Christ filled their thoughts. Now think about this, friends. Some of you are in medical school. Some of you are in nursing school. Some of you are in business school. You're in various things. And you're, many of you are in college. But let me tell you what today. There are many people in our church that are doctors, professors at universities, nurses, successful businessmen, and their, their hearts are not set upon Christ. Their hearts are set upon worldly greatness. And it's obvious. I'm not saying we should go around judging people. But there are many people in the church today, that is where their ambition lies. And let me tell you, as young people, you have the opportunity to change that in the church. Do you understand this? If you will surrender yourself through Christ, it doesn't matter what profession you are, you're called to be serving Christ in that profession. No matter what profession you are, your greater calling in life is to be a soul winner. You understand that? Your life does not revolve around your job. Your life does not revolve around your business. But your life revolves around the call that God has upon your life. You understand that? That's the difference between seeking worldly greatness and seeking the kingdom of God. The decisions that you make in life are not based upon how much money am I going to get out of this or how much what am I going to get some kind of promotion. But you're just, when you're truly seeking the kingdom of God, the decisions you make in your life are going to be based upon what is it that I can do that will greater enlarge the kingdom of heaven. Can you say amen? I've had opportunities to go and be a pastor and do these other things. And churches where people would tell me, they would say, you know, if you take this call to be a pastor, it's going to be really great for your career. And you go and pastor this church for three years, and you'll be able to go wherever you want to go and do whatever you want to do after that because that church is such a big popular church. And I said, you know what? It may be a great career opportunity for somebody, but it's not for me. Because I'm not interested in increasing my career. I'm interested in doing the will of God today. And friends, today, those are the kind of people that God's looking for today, GYC. God's looking for you, young people, to have that kind of experience. And so, look, all those quotes I just showed you, I want to show you the ten things that I pulled out from those quotes that the disciples experienced. Number one, they humbled their hearts. What did they do? They humbled their hearts. They recognized that they weren't the only person on the planet. They recognized that there was one higher than them. They had true repentance. They bowed their knee before God in submission to Him and they asked God to forgive them for their sins. They confessed their unbelief. They reproached themselves for the mistreatment of Jesus. They prayed for a fitness to share Christ. They put away all their differences. They forgave each other. They put away their desire for supremacy. They came close together in Christian fellowship. And they had no more desire for worldly greatness. And as a result of all those things, Christ did what? Filled their thoughts. How many of you today want Christ to fill your thoughts? How many of you today want every thought that you have to come into obedience and captivity to Christ? Is that your desire today? That's my prayer for you during GYC. It's my prayer for you as you come to the seminar. It's my prayer for you as you go to the small groups each night and kneel together and pray together. It's my prayer for you as you wake up in the mornings and do your personal devotions each day. But it's certainly my prayer for you 
after you leave GYC. You say amen? And that it will be that for the rest of your life. Now, notice this. When they did those things, when they came together and they had this experience in their hearts, what happened as a result, friends? Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit did what? The Holy Spirit came down, and we find, you can read about it there, and it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. Yes or no? Yes. Now, not false tongues, but true tongues. There's other seminars that deal with that. And don't go there. You can listen to them on audioverse. Stay in this one, okay? All right. Now, as a result, listen, friends, this is so powerful. They went through that experience, the disappointment, and they were missing the big picture. And then there was a waiting time in which Christ developed His character in their lives. Yes? Then, once that happened, He poured out His Spirit in Pentecost, and the, and the people, and they went out and they began preaching the Gospel everywhere. And notice this, with great power, what kind of power? Great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was what? Upon them all. And I notice this. It says, education page 95, Then there was such a revelation of the glory of Christ as had never been witnessed before by man. Can you say amen? On that day, the day of Pentecost, God had been waiting for 4,000 years to pour out His Holy Spirit And finally, He had a small group of people upon the earth that were ready to receive it. Can you say amen? They were ready to receive it. They had humbled their hearts. They had gone through the process that God wanted them to go through. Do you think in order to receive the latter rain, we need to go through the same process? Absolutely, friends. So again, they asked, is it the time? They had a great disappointment. They were missing the big picture. We're just reviewing here. Number four, what did they realize? Number five, what was their, what, what did God have for them? A waiting time. Gotta wake you guys up a little bit. Number six, what did they experience? True searching of heart and revival. Number seven, what happened as a result? Holy Spirit was poured out. And then number eight, what happened after that? The gospel was what? Preached and the mission was accomplished. Paul said he believed that he had preached the gospel to every creature on the earth, right? Do you see those steps, yes or no? <clears throat> Keep those steps in mind, okay? Now, notice what we're told here. Let's read this first sentence together. Are you ready? These scenes were to be repeated and with greater power. What kind of power? And what are they to be? Repeated. She says the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost was the former rain, but the latter rain will be what? Even more abundant. Even though it was the greatest manifestation ever, she says it would be more abundant. The Spirit awaits our demand and what? Reception. You see, my friends, the Spirit is not... We are not waiting on the Spirit. The Spirit is waiting on us. Can you say amen to that? Christ is again to be revealed in His fullness by the Holy Spirit's power. Isn't that amazing, friends? Now watch this. We're going to look at the second point now. Are you ready? Are you tired? Are you, are, are you, are you ready for a break? No, you're not re- You're supposed to say no. no! Okay, good. Revelation chapter 10. I know it's a lot to take in, but bear with me. Revelation chapter 10. 
Please turn with me there. Now we're going to look at the Seventh-day Advent movement and prophetic history. Did you know that the Seventh-day Adventist Advent movement is predicted in Bible prophecy? Did you know that today? Very powerful, friends. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. I want you to notice this verse. <clears throat> or if you're there, say amen. Verse 8, the, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Now, how many of you know what the little book is? Does anybody know what that is? How many of you do not know what the little book is? Don't be afraid to raise your hands. So, okay, so how many of you do know? How many of you don't know? Okay. The little book that's being described here, I don't have time to explain it, but I'll just tell you. The little book being described here is the book of Daniel. And specifically the prophecies that deal with the end of time. Okay, Now in Daniel chapter 12, just before Daniel um, finishes the book, God says to him, go your way and what? Seal the book and, or close the book until when? Until the time of the end. So until the time of the end, the book of Daniel was what, everyone? It was sealed. It was closed. But in the time of the end, what would happen to the book of Daniel? It would be open again. Now, according to, according to prophecy, if you study, you find in Daniel chapter 7 the prophecy of the 1260 years, correct? That prophecy is one of the most amazing in history because John predicted over a thousand years in advance specific events in history. If you've not studied that prophecy, you need to because if you have any doubts about whether or not the Bible is real or, or it's true or whether or not God is real, that prophecy will, will eliminate all your doubts. You understand that? If you don't understand that, come and see me and I'll be happy to share it with you. Now, the end of that prophecy was which year? 1798. Now, according to what we're told, that marked the beginning of the what? Time of the... End. Are you with me? Yes or no? Now, the Bible says to, the, that the angel told uh, John, go take the little book which is what? Open. When would when God say in Daniel 12 it would be open? He said seal it till the what? Time of the end. So, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, the book of Daniel would now be what? Open. So, when we look at this prophecy, what time period are we dealing with? Late 1700s, Early what? 1800s. There's more ways to know that, but that's the simplest way. Now, he says, go take the little book. So verse 9, so I went to the angel. Now, let me just say this first. During this time period, there were people of all different denominations that began to study Bible prophecy. They were studying Daniel. They were studying Revelation. And these people were from the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, and all these different churches, Right? These people began to follow a man named William Miller. And William Miller, as he studied the prophecy of the 2300 years, 2300 days, he believed that Jesus was going to come in what year? 1844. I know this is a little review for some of you, but I'm just setting a base, okay? And he began to preach that message all across America, and that message actually began to be preached all across the world, right? In the mid-1800s. They believed Jesus would come in the year 1844, okay? But did Jesus come in 1844, yes or no? Because if He did, we wouldn't be here, would we? We'd be either in... Well, we probably wouldn't be anywhere because we wouldn't even have been born yet, right? So thank God 
for the great disappointment in some ways, right? That we would have the opportunity to know Jesus. Now, as they studied that book, they began to ask the question, is it the what? Is it the time for who to come? Jesus to come. Isn't that what the disciples asked? Jesus, isn't it time for you to set up your kingdom? The Millerites began to ask the question, is it the time for Jesus to come as they studied the prophecies, right? But did Jesus come, yes or no? No, He didn't. There was a great what, everyone? Disappointment. Did the disciples experience a great disappointment? Yes. Did the early Advent believers experience a great disappointment? Yes. You see, there's a parallel there. Can you see it? Yes or no? Alright, it's going to get even better. So, verse 9, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. Which is which book? The book of Daniel. He said, And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became what? Bitter. Was the Millerite movement a sweet movement, yes or no? The people, as they studied the prophecy, they began to believe that Jesus was going to come. Was that a, if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, would that be a sweet thing to hear, yes or no? It'd be a sweet thing for most of us. For some of us here, it may be a scary thing. Now, you can change that with one decision by allowing Christ to cleanse you and take full control of your life. But if you love Jesus, it's a sweet thing. But then Jesus didn't come, right? And so what happened to that sweetness in the mouth? It turned what? It turned bitter, okay? Now notice what happens. They were what? Missing the bigger what? Picture. Jesus wasn't going to come until there was, just like the disciples, until there was a work that was done in them, and then what? Through them. Can you say amen? Now, they had a mission to fulfill, verse 11. And He said to me, after the disappointment, after the bitter experience, you must prophesy how? Again, about many people's tongues and kings. Now watch this, friends. They were missing the big picture. But what they didn't realize was that their disappointment was really God's divine what? Appointment. As they went back and began to study that prophecy, they recognized that they did have the right time, they did have the right prophetic time, but they had the wrong what? Events. Jesus wasn't to come in 1844, but He was to begin the work of judgment in 1844, yes? And as they restudied that prophecy, they began to realize that truth, okay? So, some people like to attack the Adventist church. Let me just address this real quick. Because they say, oh, those Seventh-day Adventists, you, you remember them. Here's a little bit of apologetics that you can use to defend the Adventist church when your friends say something negative about it. They say, look, those Adventists, they were setting dates for the second coming of Jesus. Well, the actual fact is, it wasn't Adventists that were setting dates. It was, a, it was a Baptist preacher. Right? If you want to get really technical about it. Now, then they say, well, the, they were wrong because the Bible says you can't, you can't know the day or the hour. Well, that's true, but God had covered that so, because He wanted that message to be preached. Okay? He wanted the message of Christ coming to be preached because it was part of the Reformation. Now, um, the disciples, did they experience a bitter disappointment? Yes or no? And so, the disciples had an idea about what God's kingdom should be, but they were disappointed. Did that mean that 
that Christ wasn't really with them? Not at all. So when the Adventists had the great disappointment, just because the Seventh-day Adventist Church had the great disappointment, it does not mean that this is not a movement led by God. Do you understand that? Because the disciples also had the same experience. Are you with me, yes or no? All right. But he said, after the bitter, you would have to rise again to preach. Amen? Now, between that time, just like there was for the disciples, there was a what, everyone? A waiting time. What happened after the great disappointment? What happened to the majority of the people that were with the Millerites? What happened to them? Boom! They left, right? They said, what a joke. This is a bunch of nonsense. Who would want to follow this bunch of baloney, right? And they said, we're not going to follow this. And they left. But was there a small group there, yes or no? There was a small group that remained and they continued to study the Bible. And as they studied and prayed, God began to reveal. Now watch this, friends. This is powerful. They were waiting and then they experienced true surrender in their hearts. Yes or no? They began to confess their sins. They began to humble their hearts and ask God to show them the truth of what really was happening, right? And as they studied it, they saw the truth. Now, what happened after... Oh, friends. What happened after the disciples at Pentecost humbled their hearts and had ten days in the upper room? What happened? The Holy Spirit was what? Poured out on the day of Pentecost. When the early Advent believers came back and restudied the prophecy and they began to pray and they began to surrender, they, God began to reveal to them the truth But then the Holy Spirit was what? The Holy Spirit has to be what? Poured out. How was it poured out? Through the visions and dreams of Ellen G. White. Can you say amen? And the visions and dreams of Ellen G. White confirmed what they had already studied in the Bible. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was confirming through their preaching what they had already studied in the Scriptures during those ten days. Do you see the parallel, friends? Let me say to you this today. Well, after the Holy Spirit came down and they studied this passage, they realized that they had a greater mission. Again, Revelation uh, uh, 10, verse 11. And He said to me, you must prophesy how? Again, to many multitudes, nations, and tongues. So then they realized that they had to preach the three angels' messages in all the world. Can you say amen? Let me say this, young people. Never, ever doubt the truthfulness of the Seventh-day Adventist church today. Never ever doubt the prophetic significance of the Advent movement in history and prophecy. It is in the Scriptures. It is paralleled with the experience that the disciples had. And this movement is God's true movement in the last days. Can you say amen today? Friends, we we have such a truth. We have such an experience in this church that is unbelievable. Can you say Amen? So, the parallel again. They were both asking, what? Is it the time? Secondly, they experienced what? A great disappointment. Thirdly, they were missing the what? They were missing the big picture. Fourthly, they realized that there was a mission to what? Fulfill. Fifthly, there was a what? There was a waiting time. Sixthly, there was true heart searching and what? Revival. As a result, what happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out and then they realized or they began to accomplish the mission. The disciples preached Christ 
And the Advent movement preached the first and second angel's message, the everlasting gospel. Can you say amen, yes or no? Now, what about this? What does she say? These scenes are to be what, friends? Repeated. And with what kind of power? Greater power. When do you think that's going to happen? Very, very soon. What about today? What about now? Are we experiencing the same thing in the last generation? Will the last generation experience the same thing as the early disciples and the early Advent believers? You better believe it. This is the time when we're supposed to take a break. But how many of you want to hear about now? Maybe I should come over here and sit down. How many of you want to hear about now? Can, can, I, can I give you a controlled break? Can you do that? Can we do that? If you want to leave, you can leave. But please don't leave. This is the best part. I've just been setting up for this part. Stand up. If you have to go, you can go. But stand up. Stretch. Do a twist. If it's appropriate, to your right or to your left, there may be, there should, find a girl if you're a girl, find a boy if you're a boy, and put your arms behind your back and let that person give you a little stretch. Alright? Take a little stretch. Do a little jumping jack. Do some jumping jacks. You ready? I knew, you know, this, fi- this is the thing. They gave you five-minute break in the schedule. Now, if I let you guys take a break, you know what's going to happen? You're not going to come back for 15 minutes. You know it's true. So, this is the, this is the break you're going to get. All right, now, stretch, touch your toes. Now, touch your nose. Fingers up. On, on, you take them down and in. Ready? One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. You feel awake? No. All right, sit down. If you got to go, go. But if you're going to stay, stay. I can't risk letting you go off for 20 minutes and not come back, and then I won't get to finish. All right? You ready? Are you sure? All right, watch this. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. This is incredible. Second Peter chapter 3. I believe that Second Peter chapter 3 is a direct prophecy about the times we're living in right now. Right now. And I believe that Peter wrote this chapter for our generation. I'm sure he probably, there's another meaning for it, but I believe it really has something to do with us today. Now, remember what, was, what were the disciples and the early Advent believers asking? What were they asking? Is it the what? Is it the time? And was it the time, yes or no? It wasn't quite the time, but soon after was the time, right? Now, if you look in verse 1 and 2, <clears throat> notice here, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, that I may stir up your pure minds by way of reminders that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior. Now, what is Peter saying here? Basically this. He's saying, look to prophecy, right? Look to prophecy, and prophecy reveals the right time for any event. Okay. Now, notice 
in our church today, we always preach that Jesus is coming what? Soon, right? And in all of our evangelistic meetings, we preach Matthew chapter 24. You know, there's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be hurricanes. There's going to be, you know, all these war and disease and all these things, right? And in our evangelistic meetings, we preach that and we say to people, Jesus is coming what? Soon. And is it great for those people who have never heard that before, yes or no? Yes. But you have people who are within the church... How many of you have ever been excited? How many of you remember the... How many of you were not raised in the Adventist church? How many of you were not raised in the Adventist church? Okay. Do you remember the time that you first heard about the second coming of Jesus? Do you remember that? It was so exciting. And you, and you began to... Maybe you went to everybody in the church and you said, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. We've got to get ready. And what did people in the church do? You know, you really need to settle down a little bit. <clears throat> When you've been in the church as long as I have, you hear that message all the time. And I've been hearing for 65 years that Jesus is coming soon. I didn't think that I would make it through college. People told me not to get married. You can fill in the blank, right? People told me not to have kids because Jesus is coming and you got to get ready. Well, the truth is, Jesus hasn't come. And we've been preaching this message for decades, and He still hasn't come. Have you heard somebody say that? How many of you have said that? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but are people saying that, yes or no? But God's true people are asking the question, is it the time? But notice what Peter says in verse... Well, let me back up here. Notice what he says in verse 3. Knowing this first, that what? That what, everyone? Scoffers will come in when? The last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Does that sound familiar? Boy, it sure does sound familiar. That's exactly what we hear in our church today. Now, notice this. They're scoffers. Are are these people that are like the atheist professors at Harvard that say the Bible is a bunch of baloney? Is Is that the scoffers, yes or no? No, because their scoffing is that they say, where is the promise of His coming? So these are not people that are outside the church. These are people that are where? Within the church. So the greatest attacks from the enemy in the last days on God's people will not come from without, but they'll come from where? They'll come from within. Okay. Now, why do they scoff? Because they're walking according to their what? To their own lust. Now, I'm about to get pretty serious here. Now, I want you to notice something. They say, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were From the beginning of what? Creation. Now notice verse 5. And verse 5 speaks to our generation and the situations happening in our church today. For this they willfully forget. Now what what happens if I willfully forget something? Now, can I forget something? She said to forget something on purpose. That's exactly right. Can I forget something on purpose that I do not know? Yes or no? 
Now, let me just say, if my wife's birthday is on June 21st, I won't tell you the year. She'll kill me. Okay? But my wife's birthday is on June 21st. And if I willfully forget my wife's birthday, is that a problem, yes or no? It's a problem for the next year, isn't it? Until I remember her birthday the next time, right? But if I, I, do I forget my wife's birthday on accident? No, because I what? Because I know it. So if I'm going to forget it, I'm going to have to, how will I forget it? Willfully forget it. Or forget it on purpose. Now why would I do that? Maybe because I don't want to spend money, right? Husbands are cheap, tightwads. But I would never do that. Yes, my wife, she gets a nice birthday. I take her out to eat and all that stuff. Remember that, man. All right. <clears throat> but notice what happens. These scoffers in the last days who are in God's church, who are saying, where's the promise of His coming? Notice what they say. They willfully forget. They forget it on purpose. What do they forget? That by the Word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that was then existed perished, being flooded by water. What's the issue, friends, in the last days that the scoffers within the church are willfully forgetting? Creation. Are you with me? Is that happening in our church today? Yes or no? At some of our universities, evolution is being taught as fact in the classroom. Not, it's one thing to teach evolution as a theory and then counter it with reasonable arguments from creation. It's another thing to teach evolution as a fact and then to counter the claims of creation. Does that make sense? Yes or no? So I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to teach evolution at all in the college, but you should teach it as a theory that's not true, that is proven false, by all the reasonable arguments of creation. Does that make sense? Are you with me? But it says in the last days that these people would willfully forget that God created the world by His Word. The power, the creative power of His Word. Are you with me, yes or no? Are we dealing with that issue in the church, yes or no? Now, why is it that they are willfully forgetting? Now, I'm not going to point out people because I don't know their own situation, but according to the Scripture, they willfully forget because, um, because they are walking according to their what? To their own lust. Now, do you know, I forget the guy's name, but there was a famous evolutionist, and he said, do you know why I choose to believe in evolution and to not believe in God? Not simply because, not simply because I believe that it's supported by scientific fact, because friends, I've got to be honest with you, I studied evolution in college, and there is absolutely no substantial evidence for the theory of evolution. I have atheist friends that say, evolution is baloney. And let me tell you, it's, it's nonsense. You cannot, it's just not based upon any reasonable fact. But the reason that many people accept evolution and atheism is because they said that they do not want to be held accountable for their acts of immorality. If they want to have sex, they want to have sex. If they want to drink, they want to drink. If they want to live for the world, they want to live for the world. And they don't want anyone, any type of moral restraint put on them. That's why they walk according to their own lusts. Does that make sense? Yes or no? 
Now, I'm not trying to pick on any individual, but I'm just pointing out what the Scripture says, and you can take it as you want for yourself. But the, Peter says, in the last days, there would be scoffers who would question the second coming of Jesus because they began to question the issue of what? Creation. Are you with me, yes or no? And we are seeing that happen in our universities today. Now, does that mean that we should give up on the church, yes or no? Not at all, friends. But notice, remember what the other disciples and the early Advent believers had to go through. What did they have to go through? A great what? A great disappointment. How many of you are thankful for great disappointments that will turn into divine appointments? Amen? Our church today is going through a great disappointment. The church is lukewarm. Is that true? Yes or no? The church is not on fire. But let me tell you something. That was predicted in prophecy. You read Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea. You read the parable of the ten virgins. How many of the virgins fell asleep? All ten fell asleep. The church in the last days is going to fall asleep. But here's what... And you're going to start seeing problems like this issue coming up in a church that's fallen asleep. Wouldn't that make sense? I mean, if the church is asleep, that's when you're going to start seeing these kind of problems. People start doubting creation. Then they start doubting the second coming. Then they start doubting the Bible. We have what we call higher education, right? And in our, some of our universities today, some of the professors are casting doubt even on the authority of the Word of God. They're saying, well, some parts are inspired and some parts aren't. What would you expect from a Laodicean church, friends? You see, but then some people will start to get these ideas in their mind and they'll say, well, if this is what's being taught in universities, why should I even be a part of this church? Why should, why, is this church really of God? Is this church really His movement of the last days? Are we really the remnant church? And people become discouraged and they start letting the world close in around them. And then they, they, you know, they start letting their business rule their life. And before you know it, they're working on Sabbath. And they start, stop going to church. And then they're completely out of the church. Have you seen it happen in other people's lives, yes or no? But let me tell you something. These problems we see in the church today are not a reason to walk away from the church. They're not a reason to be discouraged, but they're a reason to be encouraged. Why is it a reason to be encouraged? Not because I like evolution being taught in the schools. Not at all. But simply this, that we prophecy revealed that the church would go through this time of lukewarmness. Do you understand that? Prophecy revealed that there would be a time of disappointment right before Jesus comes. you follow me, yes or no? So we are right on track. We are right on schedule for closing out this world's history. You understand that, yes or no? So when you see the problems in the church, don't become discouraged. Don't become critical. But realize that we are right on track. Is God going to see the church through, yes or no? God's going to see the church through. He's going to see it through. How much time do I have? We have to stop at 11.30 to take questions and then pray. So we got about 30 minutes. Okay, we're, we may finish a little bit early. Now, what's happening here? We're in, this, we're in this time right now. Wouldn't you agree? We're in this time right here, the same as the disciples were. We're in a time of great disappointment. We're in a time of lukewarmness. 
And what we need to see is that there's a bigger picture. We spend all of our time reading about, you know, what's happening with the evolution in the church. We spend all of our time reading and talking about the problems in the church and criticizing what this pastor is doing or what this conference president's doing or, or this or that. We spend all of our time doing that. And as we're doing that, we're feeding right into the devil's trap. You understand? We're feeding right into his trap because he loves it when we talk about the problems in the church. He loves it when you criticize what's happening in the church. What's happening to us? We're missing the bigger picture. We're missing the bigger picture. Okay? We think that we have it all together because we're standing up against the evolution problem in the church. We, we won't, we'll boycott these different schools that are teaching evolution. We'll do this and we'll do that and, 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 and we'll, we'll set straight this pastor or whatever it is. We think that we're on top of the game, but actually we're missing the bigger picture. Do you understand that? Look with me in verse 8. Verse 8. But the Lord is not slack concerning what? His promise. As some count slackness. But is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should what? Perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, let me read that text one more time. He's not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward the heathen out in the world. Is that what it says? He's, not, he's long-suffering or patient towards those who have not accepted Christ yet. Is that what it says? But what does it say? He's long-suffering towards who? Towards who? Us. Why the delay? Why isn't Jesus coming? What's the typical answer that most evangelists give? Tell me if I'm wrong. They say, well, Jesus will come when every person on the earth has made their decision either for or what? Have you heard someone tell you that answer? Well, that answer is wrong. Actually, it's not totally wrong. It's partially right. But it's not the bigger part of the answer. It's like 20% of the answer. Does that make sense? What's the real reason God's waiting? Who's He waiting for? He's waiting for us, friends. He's waiting for us. So there's this waiting time in verse 9. There's this apparent delay that Jesus is making. And He's waiting not for the world, but He's waiting for who? He's waiting for us. What is God really waiting for? Well, we typically preach about signs of the times, don't we? We say, you know, that Jesus is almost here because there's more earthquakes than ever, there's more hurricanes than ever, there's more natural disasters than ever. Correct? Don't we say that? But that's not what God's waiting for. You know, Jesus, I'm going to run through this real quickly, but in Luke chapter 21, Jesus made a list of signs to look for. Okay, He did the same thing in Matthew 24. He said there'd be a great tribulation. He said there'd be a great earthquake. He said the sun and moon would turn dark. You can read about this in Luke chapter 21. We're not going to turn there because I want to go through it quickly. He said the stars would fall from heaven. He said then that there would be distress of nations. The sea and the waves would be roaring. Men's hearts failing them from fear. And the powers of heaven would be shaken. If you trace that through Luke chapter 21, Jesus says those events would happen before His coming in that exact order. He lists them in a specific order. Okay? Are you ready to see this? Yes or no? Are you still awake? Are you okay? Are you with me? Are you sure? Are you are you gaining something? All right, good. Now watch this. 
since the early, since the 1700s, these, all these signs have been fulfilled one right after the other, except for one. Look at this. He said there would be great tribulation, which ended in 1798, okay? The 1260 years. And I know that there's another great tribulation coming, but he was also speaking about this one. The great earthquake that would take place from Revelation 6, the Lisbon earthquake took place in 1755, the greatest earthquake in the history of the world. It was felt from Greenland all the way to South Africa. It was felt from Eastern, Western Europe all the way to, over to Asia, okay? The greatest earthquake ever. This, and thirdly, he said the sun and moon would turn what? Would turn dark. Yeah, May 19th, 1780, the dark day of 1780, it took place, and science is still at a, doesn't know how to answer why that happened, okay? So it happened, and then that very same night, the moon turned as red as blood. You know, at about noon on May 19th, 1780, the sky went black, and it stayed black the rest of the day. It wasn't an eclipse. And science doesn't know what caused it. People thought the day of judgment had come. People that didn't believe anything in the Bible. Okay. So notice, remember the order. Jesus said there would be a tribulation. It took place. Jesus said there would be a great earthquake. It took place. Jesus said the sun and the moon would turn dark. It took place. Those things happened in the 1700s. Then Jesus said the stars would fall. Luke 21, 25-28. In 1833... The stars of heaven fell. I think it was November 13th, 1833. The stars of heaven fell and they were rushing across the sky all across the United States. People also thought the day of judgment had come. Again, science is at a loss to explain what was happening and why it was happening. But people who had been studying Bible prophecy knew what was happening. They knew it was fulfillment of prophecy, right? Now, Jesus then said, the next thing on Jesus' list, there would be distress of nations. From, so look, look here, friends. The Great Tribulation, earthquake, 1700s, sun and moon, 1700s, stars, 1800s, the distress of nations from the 1900s until now, from world, starting of World War I, we've seen greater distress among the nations than in the history of the world, have we not? We've seen it, friends. And Jesus said it would happen. Then He said, notice, every hundred years or so, something happens. Are you with me? Every hundred years, a major sign that Jesus said would happen, happens. Then He said the sea and waves would roar since about the year 2000. Remember back in 1990, how many hurricanes did you hear about? Not that many. 1995, how many tsunamis? Not that many. But about the year 2000, what started happening around the world? A major increase. All these hurricanes started slamming Florida. All the tsunamis began to take place down in Haiti and, and uh, you know, over in Asia. Two and three hundred thousand people killed at one time. You know, Japan just took place. And, and I've, got a, I've got a list of them that they happened. But since the year 2000 until now, the sea and the waves that have been roaring, the exact words of Jesus fulfilled upon the earth. Every hundred years, friends, a major sign is taking place. And then... He said men's hearts failing them from fear. From 2001 until now, from the attack of terrorism and 9-11, have we not seen an increase of fear among people? People are giving up their freedoms and their rights to have security in their lives. Fear in every heart. Would you agree? You see, Jesus listed these things. and They have happened in history in the exact order He said they would happen 2,000 years ago. Can you say amen today? 
Bible prophecy is true. The Bible is real, friends. And then there's one last thing. The powers of heaven will be shaken. When will that take place? When Jesus comes. You see, listen. All the signs that Jesus gave, those things have been fulfilled. They've been done. They've been finished. God is not waiting on more signs of the times. Okay? Jesus said they'll see the Son of Man coming. Now, how many of you know Dr. Stephen Hawking? You know who he is? One of the most famous scientists in all the world. Secular man, not a Christian. Notice what he said in the year 2006. He said it's important for the human race to spread out into space for the survival of the species. Doesn't that sound exciting? He says, Hawking said, life on earth is at an ever-increasing risk of being wiped out by a disaster such as global warming, a nuclear war, or a genetically engineered virus or other dangers we have not yet thought of. And he said, we won't find anywhere as nice as earth unless we go where? To another solar system. He also said that he believes our planet has about less than 100 years to survive. Did you realize this, friends? This is a secular man saying our planet has probably less than 100 years left. And he said, what's the solution? The solution is not to clean up the oceans. The solution is not to clean up the air. He said, our planet's finished. He said, our only hope is to go to another solar system and find another planet to live on. How many of you are ready to take that exploratory voyage? Are you ready? Hop in a space shuttle and look for another planet. That's what the solution is for our planet from science. Even So, listen. The signs of the times say it's ready. Secular scientists say it's ready. Is maybe God's waiting for the Pope. Right? Because all of Adventism looks to the, to the papacy to fulfill end-time prophecy, right? Maybe, let me tell you something. God's not sitting on His throne in heaven twilling His thumbs and saying, man, I really wish the Pope would hurry up. He's getting old, Pope Benedict. If he doesn't do something fast, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to raise up another Pope. God's not sitting in heaven waiting on the Pope. The Pope is ready. 2009 and 10, Pope said, there is an urgent need of a true worldwide political authority. Such an authority would have to regulate the law and would need to be globally recognized. It would have to have the authority to enforce submission from all the nations in its decisions. Just a few months ago, this year, 2011, Pope Benedict again called for a global authority with universal jurisdiction where each of the other world's nations would transfer some of the power to a central authority that would ensure justice for the world. Now, my friends today, what does that sound like to you? Bible prophecy, Revelation 13, is coming to a head, friends. God is not waiting on the Pope. He's not waiting on the signs of the times. These things are ready. You know, it's very interesting that... Um, I forgot what I was going to say. Has that ever happened to you? My mind went blank. After two hours, my mind finally went blank. How about that? What is God really waiting for? Oh, I remember. If you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you can't keep a preacher down for very long, can you? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Bible tells us that He's restraining. He's restraining this power. Revelation 7 says He's holding back the winds of strife. God is not waiting on any of these things. What's He really waiting for? We're about to close, friends, but one final powerful point. 
Romans chapter 8. Turn in your Bibles there with me. Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Are you there? We're going to finish on time, friends, or maybe even a little early. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until when? Until now. Now, Paul was speaking about it in his day, but are we seeing groans and birth pangs in the creation today, yes or no? We're seeing it all fulfilled, signs of the times. And notice what he says. Verse, back up to verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption or sin into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So, let me, what is Paul saying here? Let me put it in layman's terms. Very simply this. When Adam and Eve committed the, the sin in the Garden of Eden, when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what happened to the creation of the world? What happened to it? It was cursed, right? It was cursed. And like Paul said, it was subjected to futility. In other words, all the animals started dying, all the trees, start, all the leaves started falling off, and man was condemned to die, but creation not because of any fault of its own, but creation also had to what? It also had to suffer, right? Under the curse of sin. It, wasn't, it didn't want to do it, but it was willing to do it. Why? Because God said, for the sake of humanity, whom I will redeem, basically, would you be willing to suffer under the curse of sin? And not that creation... I'm not talking about Mother Nature. Creation doesn't think for itself. But creation answers to the voice of God, does it not? I mean, it's subjected to Him. And so creation was willing to be subjected to the curse in order to save who? To save humanity. And knowing also that itself, creation itself, Paul says, would be eventually delivered and restored to perfection. Yes or no? Is that what he's saying? Now, what is Paul saying? Why? He's saying that we know that the whole creation groans and labors. We have, the earth has been under 6,000 years of sin, yes? And what are we seeing now? We're seeing the earthquakes and the hurricanes and all these things. What's happening here? Very simply this. The earth now has been subjected to sin because of the rebellion of man. But now, at the end of time, creation is rebelling against the sin in the world. Does that make sense? It's buckling. It's groaning. And that's why the increase in hurricanes and natural disasters, because the earth is basically revolting against the sin in the world. Does that make sense? So creation is yearning and groaning for deliverance from God. Can you say amen? Now think, what does this have to do? What is it waiting for? What are the signs of the time of waiting for? What is the creation groaning? What is it waiting for? What is the Pope waiting for? What is God waiting for? Look in verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of who? Of God. Do you understand what this means, friends? 
It says the creation is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. What are all these things waiting for? They're waiting for you. What is God waiting for? Not more hurricanes. For you. What is the Pope waiting for? A revealing of God's true people on the earth. What is creation waiting for? The revealing of the sons of God. And until that time comes, the end will not come. The end will not come. And we preach. We're in this waiting time. We're in the Day of Atonement since the year 1844. We're in this waiting time. And as God's people were sitting around complaining and whining and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Why hasn't Jesus come? Well, Jesus hasn't come because of your heart. Jesus hasn't come because of my heart. Jesus hasn't come because of the foolishness in your life. Jesus hasn't come because of the foolishness in my life. Because we have not made a complete surrender to God. God poured out the Spirit on the disciples when they made a complete surrender. God poured out the Spirit on the early Advent believers when they made a full surrender. But God will not pour out His Spirit in the last days, in the latter rain, until His people make a full surrender to Him and God can reveal on earth the sons of God. Can you say amen to that? Look, so in this waiting time, the Day of Atonement, what should we be doing? We need to be doing the same things that they did and the same things that the, that the disciples and the Advent believers did. We need what, everyone? Revival. Some people say the church needs revival. How many of you have ever heard that? Well, the church doesn't need revival. Did you know that? You need revival. The person next to you doesn't need revival. You need revival. Or they do need it, but as far as you should be concerned, they don't need it. Who needs it? You need it. And when you experience revival, when God transforms your heart, then He will use you to transform the person next to you. And the church will be transformed. We need characters like Christ and a refocused mission. We need to do all these things that the disciples were doing in their waiting time. The early Advent believers were doing these things in their waiting time. And in our waiting time as the final generation we need to be doing these things. Humbling our hearts, confession, repentance. You know, no more desire for worldly greatness. To be finished with this stuff. And to give Christ what is fully His. Our hearts. Our hearts. Our hearts. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit, just like it came at Pentecost, just like it came for the Advent believers, it will come to us in the form of the latter rain. And we will go out then and finish the work. Do you see this, friends? What is the cry today? <clears throat> what is the cry today in the church? We always say we need to what? Finish the what? Finish the work. How many of you hear people preach that all the time? Well, let me tell you what. That ain't going to happen until God has a people on the earth that has His character. We are putting the cart before the horse. We're trying to finish the work without the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you with me? We're trying to do something that is absolutely impossible for us to do without a miracle. It's kind of like this. I knew a guy once that had a credit card debt of more than $20,000. $20,000.
The guy was making payments of more than $800 a month just to pay the interest. He would never get out of debt paying $800 a month. Some man came along and was very nice to the guy and paid off his debt. He wrote a check and paid all the debt off. Paid it all off. That took a miracle, right? What do you think the guy did? He went back out and within three years he was over $20,000 in debt again. It's impossible to get out of that kind of debt without a miracle. We are kind of like that guy. We have gotten to the point in the church where it is impossible. We've gone so far in the hole, it's impossible to get out without a miracle. Are you with me? God is waiting. God is not waiting for us to make ourselves holy or to make ourselves righteous or to to fix our sins or to do any of those things. He's not waiting for that. He's simply waiting for you to have the attitude of complete surrender in your life. Complete surrender in your life. That means that nothing else will stand in your way of knowing Christ and drawing closer to Him. Not your school, not your work, not the money you make, not any type of entertainment, not your friends, not anything else in this life will matter more to you than Jesus and being a part of the kingdom of heaven. That's the attitude that God is looking for in the hearts of men and women. Your sins, God can take care of those. Your bad habits, God can take care of those. Those are the easy things. God can solve those for you in a moment. All He needs is your attitude. All He needs is your heart to be surrendered to Him. And He's calling for you today to do that. And until that time, we will never finish the work. We will never finish it. Jesus said the, the, the Gospel will be preached into all the world and then the end will come. But the, the Gospel doesn't get preached until the latter rain comes. And friends, that doesn't come until there's a complete surrender. Now notice what Peter says. We're, I promise you, friends, I still have time. Technically, I have until 11.30. So I still got a few minutes. Second Peter chapter 3. So we won't do this in my, in my second meeting, so don't be afraid. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Notice what he says. Verse 10, let's read verse 10. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are therein will be burned up. That's when Jesus comes. Why has Jesus not come? Because of who? Because of the Pope? Because of us. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved... What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and what, everyone? Hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. What is God waiting on us to do? Hasten the second coming of Jesus. How do we hasten the second coming of Jesus? Very simply, surrendering our lives completely to him. Have you done it today? Have you done it today? Have you done it in your life? You know, sometimes we have this foul attitude of the problem is with everyone else instead of me. But God wants to open your eyes today and He wants you to see and know that the problem is not with the person next to you, the problem is with you. And God is looking for people to make a full surrender to Him. God is looking for people who care more about what God thinks than what their friends think. He's looking for people who care more about enlarging His kingdom than advancing their career. God's looking for people who are more interested in putting souls in heaven than money in their bank accounts. You see, when Jesus comes, friends, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about any of those things. God's not going to look into your bank account when He comes. 
When God wants to pour out the Spirit in your life, He's not going to say, is He popular enough? Is she popular enough? Do, do that many people like Him or her? He's not going to look at those things, friends. He's going to say, what is the condition of your heart? Do you love me? Would you give your life for me? But more importantly, not will you die for me, but will you live for me? Amen. Jesus is looking for people today that will totally lay everything on the line for Him. Not just at GYC when an altar call is made, but at home in your apartments when you're alone and no one's looking. On the job, when you go out into public and you think, well, I'm not going to see anybody I know. God is looking for people that will fully give their hearts to Him at every aspect, every moment of their lives. Are you that person today? Because if you're not, Jesus wants you to be. He wants to pour out His Spirit on you. He wants to pour His latter rain on you. He wants to use you to fill the earth with His glory in the last days. He wants to use you to do a miracle in someone else's life. He wants to use you to demonstrate His character upon this earth to people who desperately need to know Him. He wants to use you. Do you want Him to use you? Do you want Him to do a miracle in your life? We compare with all these other groups, friends. We are living in the last days. Jesus is coming soon. And we're in this waiting time right now. And God is looking for true searching of heart. He's looking for true revival. And then the Holy Spirit will be, wait, will be brought out. What is Jesus really waiting for? Last day events. Then we're going to close with a story. Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of Himself in His church. And when the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come to take them as His own. Is it true, yes or no, friends? What does it say in Colossians 1? To them God willed to make known what are the riches of His glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in who? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is wanting to fill you today. So my question to you as we begin to close, are you looking up or are you looking around? Jesus said, when you see all these things begin to happen, lift up your heads for your what? Your redemption draws nigh. Are you looking up today, friends? Or are you looking around? Are you looking to Jesus? Or are you looking to that pastor whom you think should be doing something differently? Are you looking up? Or are you looking around to that person in the church that you've been jealous of because they were asked to sing special music and you weren't? Are you looking up to Jesus? Are you looking around to see who's watching you as you are successful in your job? Are you looking up? Or are you looking around at everyone else around you? Friends, today, Jesus is calling you to look up. Amen? He's calling you to look up. There's a young man I just preached in Ukraine. Just, I just got home a few weeks ago. I preached an evangelistic series for our AFCO session there. And there was a young man named Andre who was coming to the meetings. And Andre is about 20 years old. Just a an amazing young guy to be around. And um, he came every single night. He wanted to be baptized. But then towards the end, he changed his mind. He started to back away. And um, I began to talk with him. He began to tell me some of the reasons. And uh, I prayed with him. And he decided no matter what was going to happen to him, that he was going to be baptized. Well, he told me a few days later, he said, my job requires me to work on the Sabbath. And he said, I told them that I want to be baptized and I want to be a part of the church 
of a church that keeps the Sabbath, and they said, if you want off on the Sabbath, we have ten other people that would like to have your job. If you take off on the Sabbath, you're fired. You can go home and find another job. And he thought about that, and he didn't have to think very long. He said, you know what? I have to follow Jesus. I'm going to give all for Jesus because Jesus gave all for me. And he, said, and he lost his job for keeping the Sabbath. And he said, I'm going to be baptized this weekend. Somehow, his parents who were in Italy found out that he was going to be baptized. And they said, if you get baptized, you are no longer our son. We will disown you. you do not, we do not want you to be a part of that church. And they said, once you get baptized, you move out of our house. And if you come back home, they said, we'll cut your head off. That's what they told him. They said, we will kill you. They actually said, we'll cut your head off. So this young man was faced with the decision he would have to make. He decided to be baptized on that Sabbath. He got up to get ready to come to the baptism, and he started having a heart problem. And his heart started fluttering and palpitating. And he, he got down to the hospital, and they said, you have a major heart condition. You could die they said, we have to do major surgery, but we can't do it for a couple of weeks till the surgeon comes, so you're going to have to stay in the hospital until that time. And he called us up and he said, I was coming to the baptism and this happened. He said, I don't know what to do. And I said, brother, we're going to be praying for you. I'm going to call you back. A few, uh, I said, I'm going to call you back in a few days because we still had another week. We're having a second baptism service. So after a few days, we were about to call him and in walks Andre through the door of the, of the church. I said, Andre, what are you doing here? He said, they wouldn't let me leave. So, and I was on the second story of the hospital. So I opened the window and I crawled through the window and I jumped down and I escaped and I had to come here and visit with you. He said, I have to be baptized this Sabbath. I said, brother, praise God. And so we visited together and he said, I'm ready. He said, though my work forsook me, my parents forsook me, even my health is forsaking me, he said, this is a sign to me I have to be baptized. In the face of, of risking his life, risking disowning his family, Andre gave his life to Jesus in baptism. Friends, nothing would stop Andre from following Jesus. Nothing would stop him. What's stopping you today? What's stopping you from fully giving your life to Jesus. Not just in word, not just in your Sabbath church attendance, but in the very depths of your soul, in the very depths of your heart and your life. What's keeping you from allowing God to fully prod His Spirit on you? Is it your friends? Is it your job? Is it your house? Is it your car? Is it, is it whatever may be the things, the common things? It may be an uncommon thing. But God is looking for people like Andre who will let nothing stop them from their pursuit of knowing and experiencing Christ in their life today. Today, friends, Jesus is waiting for you. He's waiting for me. And it's not rocket science today, friends. It's not some big act that we have to do. It's not a thing, series of events. It's just simply surrendering our hearts to Jesus and giving him, crying out to Him, fill me, fill me, fill me. Empty me of sin, but fill me with Your Spirit. Empty me of self, but fill me with Your presence.
Jesus is calling every one of you today, whether you're young or old. It doesn't matter who you are, Jesus is calling you today. Are you willing to accept the call of Jesus today? How many of you today want to say, Jesus, by your grace, I want to make a full surrender to you right in this moment. Is that your desire? Friends, I'm going to pray today. I'm going to kneel and pray. I'm going to invite you to kneel with me. And we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to empty us, to help us make that complete surrender and to fill us with His Holy Spirit. And after we do that, we're going to take some questions and then, according to the program guide, we're going to spend some time in prayer together. So I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I want to invite you to make that surrender in your heart to Jesus today. Speak to Him in your heart as I speak out loud. Father in Heaven, Lord, we thank You today for Your mercy, for Your love, for Your grace. And Lord, today we may have thought coming to this meeting that we were waiting on You to come. But Lord, we realize that from Scripture, you're not wait- we're not waiting on You, You're waiting on us. And You want to come. And everything in the world says that it's time for You to come. But everyone else sees it except Your people. Prophecy reveals it. The signs of the times reveal it. The actions of the papacy reveal it. All these things reveal it. But Lord, today, Your own people can't even see it. Lord, today our eyes are blind. Just like in Revelation, it said that we're poor, blind, and naked. Lord, today we need our eyes to be open. We need our hearts to be open. And we pray, Lord, today that nothing would stand in our way of pursuing You because we know that even Your own life, even the life of Your Son, would not prevent You from pursuing us. But You gave all. And Lord, You're asking us to give all. So Lord, today I pray for every young person here, every person in this room, that Your Spirit would come upon them and that our hearts would be broken and we would be convicted of what it is that might be separating us from You. And Lord, whatever that may be, that in this moment, our heart's cry, our heart's decision, our will would say, enough is enough. And that in this second, we would give that thing to You. And Lord, that You would forgive us for our sins. And You would empty us of ourselves, of our desires for worldly greatness and power. And Lord, that You would fill us with Your Holy Spirit so that we could reflect Your character in this world and that You would use us to be a light to the world and that people would see You and us. This is our plea. This is our prayer. And we just ask You, Lord, to answer it. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.